Mr. Ray, and welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, we have State Senator J.P. Morrell from the state of Louisiana to talk to us about some criminal justice reform around non-unanimous juries that's happening in the state of Louisiana that could have a huge impact on the lives of so many people. We also have uh, the news crew that you know and love. We have Brittany and Clint back again and Sam and Spirit to talk to us about the often overlooked news. But before we jump in, I want to talk about integrity. That when people think about integrity, they often think about so this idea of value showing up in honesty, and and those are important. But integrity is about consistency of those values showing up and the consistency of that honesty being present. That if your values only show up when it's easy, when there's no risk involved, when it's clear that you'll receive positive praise, but those values aren't present when it's tough, when you might be ridiculed, when you're walking into the risk, like that's not integrity. And a lot of people I think confuse that they're like, oh, I'm a good person or like, I, Lord knows I'm around people who sort of talk and present themselves as people of integrity, but their challenge is around the consistency and the consistency is actually key. So you wanna be in a place where like your values and your beliefs and the way you show up honestly is a consistent part of how you are in the world and not just present when it's easy. Let's do this. And here's the news with me, Brittany, and Clint. Sam, we love you. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packinet at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. And this is DeRay at DeRay, D-R-A-Y on Twitter. Uh, Sam is not with us for this episode because Sam is traveling the world on vacay, but he's here in, in his spirit. Instagram Sam. <laughs> maybe he'll bless maybe he'll bless us with some, we miss you, Sam. some new grams. Instagram Sam. That's a I'm great name. He did come out strong <laughs> with his like videos and everything. I know he he started much stronger than I did. I was posting pictures of hot pockets, but you know, that was years ago. That's because he took his time and he like studied what great Instagram profiles look like and then he was like, Okay, these are all the best strategies I'm gonna take. He came ready, and I appreciate that about Sam. He always comes ready. I am not traveling the world like Sam, but I am currently in Los Angeles because I had the immense honor and privilege to speak at the United State of Women's Summit. This is the second one. Um, I was on stage with Senator Kamala Harris and Yara Shahidi. So basically, I was on stage with like my future president and another one of my future presidents. <laughs> and then um, Elaine Wilteroth uh, was um, our moderator. And we just like had a good old time in Black Girl Magic. But my day was capped off by meeting my forever first lady, finally, in the flesh, hugs and air kisses and holding hands and conversation and all, and I'm just still floating on cloud nine. So I just had to tell everybody that. Stevie Wonder start playing in the background? He did, actually. She got a... <laughs> remember, remember that Dave Chappelle sketch where he was talking about meeting Rick James, and Rick James had, like, that orange glow around him, that aura? She got the same thing, except she's way cooler than Rick James, but you know. She got a whole aura. She really kind of just like floats. Like, I don't know that her feet move. I think they just kind of float along, just like hover slightly above like the earth. Like a Spike Lee movie? Basically. Yeah. She just like rolls in. She's so incredible. Fox News covered her saying, calling herself the forever first lady as a sign of like her arrogance and a sign of the, the Obamas like think that they are everything and blah, 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 blah. The the last people who can call anybody arrogant are the folks over at Fox News, first of all. Second of all, I love Michelle Obama, and she's my forever first lady, and if she wants to claim that title, then I'm all about it. Michelle Obama, I appreciate you. She just spoke affirming words to me yesterday, and I will carry them forever. 
That's also just silly because every former first lady is always known as first lady XYZ. They always try and cause something out of nothing. It's funny. I saw it first on um, I saw it on Facebook on like a Fox News clip. I was like, really, Fox? They do, you know, when they can't attack Hillary, they come in from Michelle and Barack. <laughs> <laughs> True story. There have been a lot of videos recently, though. The video that is taking over Twitter right now is Donald Glover's uh, music video. Oh, this wow. is America. We're just—I mean, we—we're alive in a time when Donald Glover and Janelle Monae are like making art, like highly consumable art that just shifts the entire culture. He, Donald Glover, also hosted um, Saturday Night Live, and if you caught the picture that they like his second song actually opened with, it is reminiscent of Stevie Wonder's "Music of My Mind" picture, and it just took like the performance totally took me there. He's just a whole genius. It's amazing. The "This Is America" video is really fascinating and compelling on so many levels. Like I've I've probably watched it about five times now, and I probably need to watch it another five times to catch all of the. The detail and, and, you know, art is an inherently subjective thing. So people can feel whatever they feel about Donald Glover. If you don't like Donald Glover's work, I, you know, I don't know how we could be friends. But, you know, art is subjective. That's cool. <laughs> but but it, what's interesting is that, like, you can tell how seriously he takes the craft when you watch the video and you see the sort of the multiple layers of 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 imagery and the multiple layers of, of messages that he is attempting to convey and the sort of the duality of what, what I thought was most interesting. And, and this is like before all the, the think pieces are coming out and I'll be curious to see what folks are writing about this, but, <laughs> but I thought it was, what was most interesting was the sort of holding the, the sort of duality of black joy and then black violence or violence enacted against black bodies at the same time. As, and I always talk about mm. I always talk about that as the sort of marathon of cognitive dissonance and this idea that like we are a, a group of people um, in this sort of diaspora who have experienced 400 years of incessant state sanctioned violence and oppression. And yet we are not defined by the depression. And we have in the midst of such oppression, we have contributed so profoundly to like the cultural and social aesthetic of the American project. And and I think that this video and if you haven't seen it, you definitely got to go see it. The way that, like, he has the kids dancing and in the in the foreground and in the background, the sort of chaos and violence um, that's, like, indicative of the last, you know, I would say the last several years, but really the last several hundred years um, is, is really fascinating. And, and, you know, that's just, that's my take. And I think that there's a lot of other stuff that people can pull from it. But, you know, dude is out here, man. Singer, writer, rapper, actor out here and, it, and this season of Atlanta has just been like off the charts amazing that barbershop episode was hilarious <laughs> I still gotta catch up I haven't even I haven't started season two yet you definitely need to catch up season two is like just phenomenal I've like really never seen anything blacker on television that hasn't <laughs> been totally like I've really never seen anything blacker on television period and also I've never seen anything this black that is not all the way cliche, right? Like, mm. it was just, it's just amazing. 
Word. So also at United State of Women, I not only had the opportunity to speak, but the opportunity to learn. United State of Women is an organization that came out of the Obama White House, um, and they do programming and activist trainings all around the country, um, organizer trainings um, in every kind of corner of the nation. Um, but um, they also pulled together this annual summit that I was talking about earlier. And so you had everyone from women working on increasing women's uh, investments to, um, you know, women working on sexual harassment and violence to, um, obviously Michelle Obama being interviewed by the incredible Tracy Ellis Ross. Um, but we heard a number of calls to action. Um, and I learned a lot in particular from a call to action that came from restaurant opportunity center United. Um, and so there were some things that I didn't know, um, but this sparked my interest because my call to action for myself was to figure out how I could do more. And one of the things I can do is share what I learned with you all. So we often talk about raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, which is the widespread calculation of a living wage in many cities. What many of us don't realize, and I didn't realize until I began digging more into this yesterday, is that there is a minimum wage and then there's a tipped minimum wage. The tipped minimum wage applies to servers and bartenders as well as other tipped workers. And the tipped minimum wage is often far, far lower than the regular minimum wage. The idea is that servers and others are supposed to make up the difference between the tips and the regular minimum wage with their tips, and that if they don't make up the difference, employees will cover it. But as we know, policy in theory often doesn't work out the intended way in practice. For example, in D.C., where Clinton and I live, uh, the minimum wage is $12.50 an hour. It will rise to $15 an hour by 2020. But the tipped minimum wage is only $3.33 an hour and will rise to $5 an hour by 2020. Um, tipped wages, as you can imagine, are completely unpredictable. You think about the different seasons of tourism, the region that you work in, or the restaurant type, your tips will completely fluctuate with the interest in your establishment. For women, there's often an even greater risk uh, because women earning a tipped minimum wage are often not only told to accept sexual harassment and other kinds of harassment so they don't lose their tips, but often actually seek out sexual attention so that they can increase their wages, even if an employer does not protect them from people who cross boundaries and lines. Obviously, women have full agency, but we have to recognize the double standard that men are often not placed in these highly vulnerable positions when they're in the same industry. And then when you think on top of that about the risk of reporting sexual harassment and assault for women who work uh, in the restaurant industry, that risk is even greater. So if you report something and you are fired or you experience retribution and you feel like you have to switch jobs, switching jobs can often mean a delay in your paychecks, which can mean harm to your children and inability to feed your family. And a lot of people just cannot afford that time in between. Moreover, as reported by American Prospect, they said many restaurant workers are also pressured to sign non-disclosure agreements that prevent them from addressing or acknowledging hostile work environments. Often they're non-union workers without the protections of collective bargaining and working for low wages. Going through the appropriate legal avenues is often costly, and workers will sign such agreements in return for monetary settlements while employees are able to keep allegations confidential and, as you can imagine, keep these kind of hostile environments going without any retribution. Um, and so in D.C., there's an 
initiative called Initiative 77 that would end the two-tier approach and just create a universal minimum wage by 2026. That's not to say that Rock United or any other activist groups are against tipping, but it is to say that that two-tiered system is often harming people and often harming women even more. Brittany, I'm really glad you brought this up because um, I think it's something that a lot of people don't know. I think a lot of folks don't know that there is a a difference between um, the minimum wage, uh, the sort of standard minimum wage, and then the tip minimum wage. I found this out a couple of years ago um, from the same organization. It was an important revelation in many ways. And, and when you put it in conversation with the fact in all of the sort of uh, research that has been done that shows that uh, black servers are tipped less than their white counterparts, even when it is controlled for the quality of the service, right? So um, there's a study done in 2014 by Zachary Brewster and Michael Lynn, and it showed that not only are black waiters and black servers tipped less than their white counterparts, you know, because somebody could come back and say, oh, well, that's because, you know, this is all also racist. But they could say, you know, they're not of the same quality as their white counterparts. So in this study, what they did was control for the quality of the service. And when they did that, the results were um, enhanced, right? The, the sort of difference between the white servers and the black servers, uh, the, the stratification of tipping pay grew rather than was attenuated, um, which is also really interesting and, and really concerning. Um and, and that across the board, almost the same way that last week we talked about how people will talk about black people not having personal responsibility, um, but we save at higher rates than our white counterparts. Um, the quality of the servers sort of across the board um, for black servers was rated at a higher level than their white counterparts. There are a couple things that I'll say. One is that this two-tiered system of the minimum wage came at the end of the Civil War. As a way to hire newly freed slaves without paying them the base wage, and like the goal was to create a permanent servant class, which is interesting. But the people who are against the the proposed initiative in D.C. Their sort of push is that like if there's just one minimum wage and it'll lead to fewer restaurant jobs, that the menu prices will have to be higher and things like that. But what we know to be true is that there are seven states already that have eliminated the tip wage and have like one basic minimum wage. Those states are California, Oregon, Washington, Alaska, Nevada, Montana and Minnesota. In, in those states, it actually hasn't borne out that there are going to be less jobs, that menu prices have to go up, that we actually can uh, we can afford equity, that that is a good business model, too. And the third piece is when you think about employment, a lot of people think about the importance of getting a job, that like we need to make sure like people who don't have jobs get jobs. But the reality is, is if, if you get a job that is just a poverty job, then that like isn't necessarily a win. So if you get a job where you're making $3 an hour, you're not able to to like pay your bills. You're not able to make a set of choices that actually allow you to move about and navigate in society in a way that actually has choices. So the goal isn't just to get people jobs. The goal is to get people jobs that actually equip them with a different set of options and a different set of choices that they can make. And that requires that there's mobility. Indeed. I will just end with reminding us that this is exactly why intersectionality matters. We've been having conversations about Me Too. We've been having much needed conversations about women's pay equity. And it's easy to talk only about women in Hollywood or women in 
quote unquote, white collar professions and how difficult it is. And those challenges are all real, but we have to recognize just how much more vulnerable um, people are when they do not uh, make salaries, consistent salaries, when they do not have the kind of economic privilege, racial privilege, or privilege of high visibility um, that many people that we pay attention to do have. Uh, we have to consider how much more difficult it is for wage earners and women wage earners in particular. Uh, so follow Rock United, that's R-O-C United on social media. Um, and if you live in D.C., do some more research on Initiative 77. So last month, there was a, a prison riot in South Carolina. And according to a statement made by the director of corrections in South Carolina, uh, a fight had broken out the night before between rival gangs over, uh, quote, territory, contraband, and cell phones. And the priority now was to jam all illegal cell phones in the state's prison system. But Heather Ann Thompson, who is a historian from the University of Michigan and who won the Pulitzer Prize for her book around the Attica prison uprisings, has been in contact with prisoners and has gotten a very different account as compared to what was made by the director of corrections. And according to Thompson, what was left out of that statement was the fact that the correctional officers purposefully left rival gangs in the same dormitory and that the rioting lasted for seven hours in no small part because the correctional officers didn't intervene and there weren't enough correctional officers there to even do so. Um, and seven people were killed and 22 were eventually taken to the hospital as a result of this. Additionally, it would be wrong to say that the prison riot was just about gang rivalries. Um, I think it can be mischaracterized as so. South Carolina has some of the most punitive sentencing policies and some of the most crippled correctional infrastructure um, as compared to like any other state across the country. For example, one in 10 prisoners in South Carolina is serving a life sentence and and. What's unique to South Carolina is that folks who are serving life sentences are required to serve at least 85% of their time, no matter how well they've done on the inside. And so for a lot of places, if you can acquire what's called good time, and if you, uh, you know, are, are taking classes and being a good mentor and not getting in trouble and um, contributing to a sort of positive culture and atmosphere of the prison, you can acquire good time, which gives you the opportunity to go up for parole earlier than um, than usual. But that's not the case in South Carolina. And it's important to know because that's something that incentivizes a lot of men and women who are serving otherwise long sentences um, to to make sure that they're being on their best behavior in order to have a hope of, of getting out. Additionally, the McCormick Correctional Institution places metal plates over the windows, which prevents light from getting in, fresh air from getting in, uh, and the food has been reported to have mold on it, and it barely meets the caloric needs um, of that is required for the inmates to have. And then on weekends, they only get two meals. And according to Thompson in this New York Times op-ed, she wrote, there's, uh, in, and in that New York Times op-ed, there's a link uh, where that shows you one of the videos that she received from one of the men inside, and, and in it, the water from the faucet is like a, this yellowish brown, um, and you can tell, hear them talking about how it smells like feces. And this whole thing is interesting because there's a long history, as I said, of mischaracterizing and misrepresenting why prison riots happen, and then blaming it on the sort of violent dispositions of the prisoners, rather than the violent conditions that they are forced to live in. And... And it's also interesting that the DOC is complaining so much about cell phone contraband when the only reason that we're able to have a, a truer, more holistic account of what happened is because of the cell phones that many of these men have. And there's a great book that I just finished by Bruce Western named uh, called Homeward, and it's about returning citizens. And it, one of the things that it talks about is how the single most important thing 
that you can do in order to make sure that someone is successful when they are let out of prison is to make sure that they are close and connected to their family and that they have family to go to after they've been released. That is the single most important thing one can do in preventing recidivism. And that is exactly what people are in South Carolina and across the country are preventing folks from doing. And and I think it should force us to reconsider the idea that there shouldn't be cell phones in prison um, or, or that there should not be access to cheap phone calls in prison, because that is the best way for people to maintain a connection with their family. And, and if maintaining a connection with your family is the best way to reduce recidivism, it runs counter to every notion of rehabilitation that we would prevent that from happening. You know, this makes me think about a lot of things. Governor McMaster, the the governor, um, said about the riot. He said the riot was quote unfortunate, but that the but that flare ups among criminals were inevitable. He said, quote, we know that prisons are places where people who have misbehaved on the outside go for rehabilitation and also to take them from the general population. It's not a surprise when we have violent events take place inside prison. That's just so wild and like. You think about the way that that people who are incarcerated are pathologized over and over, and like the governor takes no responsibility for anything, and it's just like, you know what? These bad people just like, of course they're violent, and you're like, ah, that's shady. And I, this made me think about like, why do we talk about prison and jail so much in the podcast? Like, and people sort of push, they do it in a slick way, and they're like, Deray, but there's so many other issues, and you're like, yeah, there are a lot of issues. The incarceration of people is such a big issue that impacts so many other facets of life that, like, to not talk about it seems weird. And if you believe in justice, like, there's no way to sort of skirt around this issue. So there are people who believe in our law and order and, like, aren't upset that Trump pardoned Arpaio. And, like, that doesn't make sense, right? Like, either you believe in law—either, like, laws are sort of laws and everybody has to serve time— or not. And like race is a part of the way we think about that. So that's like two things. The other thing this made me think about is like, there are almost no rules for wardens. And I didn't understand this until I visited prisons and jails. And it was just like the wardens, they're like, no, once they get appointed, it's sort of like they can do whatever they want to maintain the jail. Like it's sort of like a, I had no clue how little like anything there is for wardens. And until that changes, like, I don't know. Like, you know, we should be moving for abolition in its own way. But just the administration of prisons and jails, like, I just had no clue how much power wardens have that is unchecked by almost anybody. You know, it's interesting to hear that people think we talk about um, criminal justice reform and jails and prisons too much. Because not only, to your point, Duray, is it connected to so many other issues— it's also just a sign of the health of the soul of our society. It is a signal to our morality. Um, you know, how we treat people who may, or often in our cases, may have not uh, actually done something wrong, how we treat them. Do we still recognize people's humanity if they've shown themselves to be imperfect or simply, some, so many times in our case, if they've simply shown, shown themselves to be black, brown, or poor? So I think it's really important that we don't close our eyes to what is happening in the criminal justice system in this country. Yes, it will make you uncomfortable. Yes, it will make you squirm. 
earworm. But if it makes you momentarily uncomfortable, think about how uncomfortable it actually is to live in these conditions. Think about what it is to run water that smells like feces. Think about what it is to not see sunlight very often or get fresh air. Think about what it means to actually have to sneak in and risk uh, punishment uh, in order to be able to talk to your friends and family. You know, I think often about a quote that lots of people can't stand because it doesn't match the Dr. King that they've been taught. But he said to Mike Wallace several decades ago that a riot is the language of the unheard. And he said that in the context of various white leaders asking him to be the one who stood in front of black communities and told people to stop lifting their voices and stop engaging in some of the ways that people were. And what he says was, I'm not going to do that because you want to concern yourself with property damage, but I'm concerning myself with why people are left in the position where they feel like this is their only avenue in the first place. I want to heal the conditions. You want to condemn the people. And that is the problem with the response that the warden gave. That is the problem with how we often talk about prison riots and the, and the conditions therein. Um, because when you continue to put profits over people, when you continue to cut corners and treat people like animals, unfortunately this will happen because justice is divine and you can't expect people not to fight for what should rightfully belong to them. Even if they've made a mistake in their life, they're still human beings and they still deserve to be treated as such. And I think it's just important to note, and I tell folks this all the time because I, I worked in prisons for a long time, taught in prisons in Massachusetts and, and work in um, jails in DC now. And I think people sometimes just forget how easily, but for the arbitrary nature of birth and circumstance, they could have been on the other side of that. Like every time I go into a prison or jail, I am acutely reminded of the fact that but for the having been born into the family I was, but for like, um, but for a million lucky, just like lucky things happening in my life, um, it like very easily could have been me on the other side of those bars. Like there's nothing inherent to my character uh, or nothing inherent to to me that makes me more deserving of of not being in prison than the people who are in prison. Right. And and I think that that's the thing that people have to sort of reground themselves in all the time is that the trajectories that we are all put on and, and like, you know, all of us on this podcast, we have worked hard and many, you know, people listening to this podcast, many of you are where you are because you worked hard, but you have to like, you have to have opportunities in the first place for that hard work to like pay dividends. And so it does, you can like, a lot of the people in prison that were working hard too and did not were not put in a position where any sort of uh, academic or economic or social mobility was possible because of limited resources and limited opportunity that was available. So just always remember just like, but for the arbitrary nature of birth and circumstance, things could be so different for all of us. Clint, how do you respond to people saying that we focus on jail and prison too much and need to talk about other social justice issues? I don't think that people fully understand the extent to which prison and jail and, and, and parole and probation like affect every facet of, of American life. Like, I don't think that people understand how many people they know that they that they know but might not even know of are in contact with the um criminal justice system like beyond black people or beyond brown people or even beyond poor people even though those are obviously the folks who are, are most um 
directly impacted. Like there are millions, like tens of millions of people who who are on probation, who have been or are on probation, parole, um, or or in touch with the criminal justice system um, in that way, in ways that even go beyond the scope of like jail or prison. And so I think one, tens of millions of people are impacted by it. So I think to, to say we shouldn't talk about this thing that affects like a huge sector of American society is is silly and, and disingenuous. And then, then I also think, you know, to Brittany's point, it's part of this notion of like the meritocracy, right? And like, it is an extension of the way that we convince ourselves that the people who have things deserve them inherently, kind of like I was saying before, and the people who don't simply didn't work hard enough. And and I think that prison is an opportunity to, it is, it is probably the most blatant manifestation of that, um, but provides a really important opportunity to, to say that, um, Again, like this so easily could have been could have been so many of us. My piece of news is a New York Daily News article with the title being a DOI probe finds one quarter of jail officers hired in 2016 had red flags should have never gotten jobs. And what it says is that uh, about 88 of the 291 recruits spot checked, uh, which is about more than 25 percent, had prior arrests, had been fired from previous jobs or had ties to inmates, which would have disqualified them from ever being hired to be correction officers. And what they would like you to believe is like it's impossible to check these things out in a way that makes sense or like we just can't figure it out. California with the police, for instance, California is one of three states in the country that makes all police misconduct records uh, secret unless they're in a court proceeding. So in California, like the police departments can't even share misconduct. So like if they get fired from one place, like they can't tell another place that that person got fired. And you think about like, my disciplinary record fire, followed me all the way through high school. There's a mechanism to actually track discipline and like have things follow people. But when it comes to police and correction officers, it's like, we don't know how to do it. Can't do it. And you think about the immense power that they have in society and you see these lapses that just like come over and over and the consequence of them. So that's like one part of this. The second part is that one of the easiest ways for contraband to get into prisons and jails is through correction officers. And what's interesting is that instead of like tightening up the systems and practices around correction officers, what prisons and jails have started to do across the country is buy really expensive technology to, to like clamp down on contraband, like cell phone, illegal cell phones and stuff like that. And it's really just a money making business is that they're like a handful of companies who make all of these technologies like the blockers that uh, block cell phone signals and stuff like that. And it's like, you actually wouldn't need to waste a couple million dollars on this technology if you just stopped the contraband from coming in in the first place by like not hiring people who bring contraband. And like, that would actually be a different alternative that wasn't propping up an industry that's already profiting off of people in prison. One of the things that's really interesting and that I think sometimes people fail to consider in the way that we, we talk about prison and the relationship between correctional officers and prisoners is that oftentimes these correctional officers are coming from the same communities that the prisoners are. Right. And so I think that sometimes we try to create this like really intent, like this is the prisoner and this is the the guard. And certainly sometimes there is a, a profound racial dynamic to that, but, but socioeconomically, like a lot of these folks are coming from the same spaces. I think, you know, in, in South Carolina, for example, like we were talking about before, um, there are places where the annual starter salary for a correctional officer is $27,000 a year, um, which is like really below 
a living wage uh, for, for many folks. And it's $4,000 less than a garbage truck driver would bring home in South Carolina. And and I think, you know, there was a piece by Shane Bauer, um, who's a reporter for Mother Jones, who wrote this explosive piece, uh, I think it was last year or the year before, about how he went undercover as a guard in a private prison system. And he was just talking about how, like, when these folks left being a correctional officer, they went to work at Walmart. They went to work at McDonald's. The way in which the job of a correctional officer is even set up, one, it is, is a job that that disincentivizes the most qualified people from like entering the space because it, it doesn't pay you well. Um, but also the barrier of entry is remarkably low for a job in which the stakes are so high. And, and I think that we have to be thinking clearly about that as we try to make sense of like the, the role that they play. Uh, and, and I, cause I think it can be easy to just say like these correctional officers are like terrible and mean and, this and this and this. Um, but I think we have to take into account the sort of larger picture of the, that they are just a piece of a much more problematic infrastructure and system rather than them themselves being one of the singular problems in and of themselves. You know, you bring up such an important point, Clint, about just how low the bar is for entry into this job. And we have to be very, very clear for police officers, for correctional officers, it is not an unreasonable request to have them be held to the highest standards possible, because not only are these folks public servants and therefore should be held to the highest standards, just like all public servants who derive their power from we, the public, the people, um, also because to your point, the, the, the stakes are so high. I think of what we know to be true at Rikers Island, which still is enclosed despite the stalwart work, uh, a continual work of many activists in New York. Um, Rikers Island, as a reminder, is a jail. It's not a prison. It's a jail. So that means you go there when you have been charged with it after you've been arrested. Um, you have not been convicted of any crime, but we know that people are held in Rikers Island for months and months and months uh, with, uh, while they are awaiting a trial or to be able to post their bail. And we have discussed the problems with cash bail before. But inside Rikers Island, we know they, the correctional officers ran a thing called the program, and uh, new uh, young inmates would be asked if they were with it, if they were with the program. If they said they weren't with it, they would be beaten, they would face sexual assault, they would face horrific humiliation in front of um, other young people and um, at the hands and led by the correctional officers themselves. Why? For the purposes of profit, because they wanted to trade in contraband, um, they would steal money from the commissary and from um, the young people that were were in the the facility, there were people who died as a result of the program. A young man named Christopher Robinson, who was only eighteen, who was beaten to death for refusing to submit to this program, um, and then young people like Khalif Browder, who was arrested for supposedly stealing a backpack that he never did, and held in Rikers Island for so long and subjected to these kinds of things that he was mentally traumatized and scarred when he came out and unfortunately ended up taking his life even after trying to fight for his freedom and his survival. Uh, and so we had to be very clear about just how high the stakes are, and therefore it is perfectly reasonable and actually responsible of us to have the highest standards for correctional officers and police officers and anyone who is allowed to have that much control in our communities. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Politics the People's coming. 
In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. 
Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. And now my conversation with Louisiana State Senator J.P. Morrell. Senator Morrell, thanks so much for joining us today on Take the People. Thank you for inviting me. So I wanted to have you come because this is the perfect time. You introduced a piece of legislation that I think is a game changer for uh, criminal justice in Louisiana. And we're praying that it sort of gets through the legislature and gets to the people. Can you talk about what that piece of legislation is and then why you did it? Okay. Well, basically, Louisiana is one of two states that for a plethora of felony offenses, allows you to be convicted with a non-unanimous jury. Now, what that means is that if you are a subject of a criminal prosecution, uh, if 10 of 12 jurors find you guilty, you are found guilty. Now, that is most people get their uh, ideas of criminal law from watching Law and Order or watching some procedural somewhere. And when you watch those procedurals, it's always, you know, the the one juror, the lone juror, the hangout. Well, Louisiana doesn't have that problem because for the vast majority of felony cases, if you have the hung juror, the hung juror doesn't matter. And basically, this entire process was born out of efforts post-Reconstruction after the Civil War, uh, after the Union was essentially chased out of Louisiana, the legislature at that time in 1880 uh, passed a law that said that in order to convict someone on a jury, you only need 9 out of 12 people. Now, people go, well, why did they do that? Well, at the time when they chased the union out of Louisiana, almost half the population of Louisiana was actually African-American. And those African-Americans post-Civil War had been given the right to vote and the right to participate on juries. Uh, however, participation was relatively low for African-Americans at that time. The legislature specifically passed that bill because they wanted to make sure that if three three members of that jury were African-American, if there was a prosecution of an African-American person, they could basically just ignore them. Um, later, the legislature and the, the government in 1899 had a constitutional convention and passed a constitution where they put that practice into the state constitution. Uh, sometimes when you're looking at this sort of stuff, you have to, people often struggle to find out what was the racist intent of doing that. And Louisiana, always the gift that keeps on giving, they were not subtle about it. Uh, when they called that constitutional convention, um, in the official journal uh, of that constitutional convention, the mission of the convention was to establish the supremacy of the white race in the state. So it was the, there was no this was not a situation where you have to look back at what they're doing and kind of see subjectively how they got there. No, it was all the racism was all in the official journal. So this was not subtle. So that was the purpose of doing it. It was uh, in the 1974 convention it was amended to be 10 out of 12, which was kind of seen as like a three fourths compromise, I guess, towards justice. 
And now I've got the bill to just put us in line with the other 48 states that have unanimous juries, like the framers of the Constitution intended. Now, how did you even learn about this? And I asked because the only reason I knew about it was I was I did a visit at Angola. And while at Angola, there was actually someone who was incarcerated who was like, DeRay, did you know about this? And I was like, what? And then I went home and Googled. I was like, this is wild. How did you find out about well, it? Well, actually, I've known about the practice for a while because I actually, when I, when I graduated law school, I was a public defender. So, I, I mean, though I didn't do... This is really schizophrenic. In the state of Louisiana, if you have a minor felony, which is like a real minor with very little time. What's an example of a minor felony? A minor felony might be something like first-degree car theft. You actually, for minor felonies and misdemeanors, you are entitled to a jury of six peers, a half jury, a small jury. That jury has to be unanimous to convict you. On the flip side, if you are being tried of something where the result could be your death, a capital crime, it requires a 12 out of 12 jury. So really, it's this bulk in the middle, which is everything else, um, which is 10 out of 12. Now, as a, as a baby lawyer, when I was a public defender, I never got the cases in the middle. I was doing stuff like, you know, first possession of marijuana, misdemeanors. So I never, I had six out of sixes and it was a thing. I didn't realize until I was much older that we were different from other states. In that we don't really, you know what I mean? Like, I, I assume that other states or some other states were doing this. And as I got older, I realized, no, no, no. We are the, well, other than Oregon. Oregon and Louisiana the only two states that are doing this. And then you're not really educated. I guess it's not part of your, your Louisiana history as to why we have it. And really, the the, the Bar Association of Louisiana, the, the criminal defense bar, they're the ones that kind of educated me on where this was born from. Like, what was the like insidi- insidious like birth of this practice? And once you really dig into it, it, it really is just completely boggles the mind that something like this is still in the books. And, you know, I was reading up, we've been following this ever since I was did that prison visit, and I've been, like, fascinated by it. And then I saw one day on Twitter that you were introducing, and, and I got all these DMs from advocates who support you, being like, you got to talk to him, he's a man. <laughs> now... My understanding is that it seems likely, knock on wood, that it's going to pass the legislature and then it have to go to a vote by the public. Like, what are your what do you think the prospects are? Like, what do you think the work left to be done is? And then I'd also love to hear, like, what are people saying who are against this? And I heard I like read one thing where <laughs> one DA seemed to say, like, it's hard to get 12 people to agree on anything. And I was like, was that the best argument you got? No, there's, there's worse arguments than that. But I'll get to that point in a second. But basically, um, I was I was actually surprised it's gotten this far. Uh, honestly, I knew because uh, I'm a senator, we're in the Senate and kind of know where your colleagues are. I knew the bill was going to get out of committee. That did not surprise me. When we had floor debate on this bill, and it was some of the best floor debate I've ever seen, where you had Democrats and Republicans both coming. No one came opposed to it, but Democrats and Republicans both coming to the floor in favor of it. Our vote count had us at 24 votes, which was too shy of a two-thirds vote to pass an amendment. I was surprised as everyone, when I sat down and there were 29 votes and the bill got out the Senate. And then we went to the, the, the House Committee, uh, House uh, Criminal Administration. Um, we knew we had the votes at that time to get it out. We Out of the 12 votes present, we had nine. After one of the DAs went and spoke against it, he actually flipped two of his own votes my way. 
And I say that because his argument, which is the most recent one, is kind of especially terrible, and I kind of want to relay it to you. So basically, he sat down, and he goes, <laughs> well, we've heard the history of this bill and that it's born of all this racism and slavery, but it works real well, it works really well, and it is what it is. He said that on the mic in a committee, which about a third of the committee is African-American. So many members of that committee had very visceral responses to that. Um, the other DA next to him said, and everybody keeps talking about how racist this is, but in my parish, I actually tried a white man for killing a black man. He said that is like the worst version of I'm not racist because I have a black friend. Right. It, like, it, it was did bad. Did you really say that out he loud? He said that out loud. <laughs> he said, like, I tried a white man for killing a black man. And uh, Representative Ted James, who probably should get the award for best responses, one, told the first guy, I know your area. I cannot believe you just said that. And I hope they heard you. And if they didn't, I'll make sure they know what you said to the first guy. To the second guy, he said, do you want a cookie? <laughs> you did your job. Right, do you right. want a cookie? Because your job is to prosecute people for, for committing crimes. Bragging that you convicted a white guy of killing a black guy truly shows your tone deaf. Now, all that being said, I, the prospects for this bill in the House, I don't the bill is very much in a position where it has momentum, but we're not there yet on the votes to pass it out the House. Now, I'll tell you what's okay. built this momentum is that beyond the racist implications, which there are tremendous racially charged and rightfully so implications around this bill, what people don't understand is that in the most in the most recent this bill this this law has been challenged to the Supreme Court of the State of the United States of America several times. The most recent one, which was in the nineties, the author of the dissent who thought this that this practice was unlawful was actually Antonin Scalia. You would well, think the the, 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 the the minority that failed to overturn this law was actually a split of liberal and conservative ju- justices. And and what people what's really built momentum is that whether you're a liberal progressive person, whether you're a conservative libertarian, both sides thinks the law is wrong for different reasons. On my side, where you have the more liberal progressive people, it has a disproportionate effect on African-Americans. It's part of why Louisiana leads the world in incarceration, and it's just ridiculous. On the more conservative side, it completely violates what Madison, Adams, and Hamilton intended when they created our judicial process in the United States of America. Like, there are tremendous uh, writings, scholarly writings by particular Adams and by Madison where the only reason why they didn't put unanimous jury in the Bill of Rights is because they thought it was self-evident. They were like, "You, of course we mean unanimous juries. And for people who are on the more conservative bent, that is what has brought them to the table. The reason why this bill has got momentum is because those groups are saying, we should not be doing this because if you're a Scalia framist, you know, strict construction of the Constitution, this is abhorrent to you. And my position is, however you get there, I just need you to get there. So if you're getting there from one way, that's fine. <laughs> you're getting there from another way. As long as you get me to 70, I'm good either way. But it's really created this, 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 this strange bedfellows in that you have tremendous national progressive groups that are in favor of this bill, but you've also got Americans for tax prosperity that are in favor of this bill. Now, I watched some of the uh, testimony live or some of the hearing live, the first one in the Senate. Um, and, and one of the things that people sort of pushed you on was like, how, will this actually have an impact? Right. That like it seems like the data is sort of shaky. 
Or that was how people were talking about it. Like, will this have an impact, or is this just like a symbolic thing? What's your response to well, that? My response is, and I think uh, if you saw it, uh, there's a senator named Dan Clater who on the floor gave some testimony. He's actually a Republican, a former district attorney, and he kind of, I mean, it was like confessional form. He kind of laid out how DAs use this. And he said that oftentimes as an ADA, he overcharged people to get them to a non-unanimous jury. So if you had someone that was on the cusp of that small jury or a large jury, and you didn't have the evidence to convict them of the, of the smaller offense, he would actually upcharge them because he knew he could prove it to a majority of people, super majority of people. So I think when you look at how prosecutors pursue cases, I think, A, you're going to see people actually being prosecuted appropriately, which means you'll see less over-prosecution. B, um, people make the argument of, well, DAs in particular, oh, my God, hung juries are the worst. No one ever gets convicted. Look at Bill Cosby. You can get a hung jury one day and get a unanimous jury the next. That's not really a, a barrier to doing this kind of practice. But most importantly, the thing that really troubles me in this process, and it really came out, there was actually a... A former head of the ACLU in Louisiana wrote an article about, she served on a jury, and when the jury got to 10 people, they just stopped listening to the other two. That, I think, is the sea change. I think that what will happen is that right now, the way juries are, are, are put together, um, when they go in deliberation right now, once they get to 10 jurors, they just ignore the other two. And that kind of defies the purpose of a jury. The purpose of a jury is for everyone in there to argue and come to a consensus, a unanimous, a unanimous consent. And I think when you have jurors actually have to debate whether or not someone's guilty of a crime, including trying to convince the people who are holdouts that they're all in agreement that person is, is guilty, I think you'll have more justice. Do, do I think tomorrow it's going to result in a tremendous amount of turnover and how they prosecute people? No. I mean, honestly, uh, Alabama, Texas, Mississippi, they all still prosecute people pretty aggressively with unanimous verdicts being required. I don't think it's going to change DA behavior in regards to how they will prosecute people as far as trying to get convictions. But if it can allow people who are being railroaded or overcharged a chance, that's more than enough in Louisiana because they're not getting any chances right now. You said you don't know if you have the votes for it to pass at the House. What can people who are listening who either live in Louisiana or know somebody in Louisiana, what can they do? Well, I mean, the, the thing is, is that the only opposition at this point is just the district attorneys. And it's not even all of them. Uh, a good third of them have, been, have said, listen, I trust my ADAs. They can prosecute cases and win unanimous juries. The most important thing you can do, anyone can do, is that if you know people or you live in the state, is to talk, talk to your house members, find out who your house member is, talk to your friends who live in Louisiana. If I have a house member and say, listen, I am watching what you do, and I want you to do what's, not, what's right, not what's most expeditious for your district attorney. Because when it, comes to, when it comes to the basic idea of what it means to be an American citizen and what you're entitled to, a unanimous jury is part of that. And the idea that we'd abridge someone's rights because it makes it easier for DAs to do things, that's kind of the antithesis of what our founding fathers had when they came here and created the Constitution and said we're combating tyranny. People should be terrified when the government who already has unlimited means to pursue a prosecution is also trying to find the easiest way possible to lock you up. While we're having this debate, they just passed a bill 
to make all of the information regarding split jury secret. Wait, 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 wait. There's a bill. I was out of the room, and I came back, and I was floored. There, while we're arguing regarding non-unanimous juries, while they're saying there's no data to prove it, there is a bill being carried by Representative Stagney that got out the Senate while I was not in the room that makes all data regarding non-unanimous juries secret. So if my bill doesn't pass, my, my Wait, resolution— is that, is that legitimately getting traction? It's already passed the House and the Senate. It's on the governor's Shut desk. Shut up! I, what? I, I've already sent. I've already started making calls, and I'm going to send some letters to the governor. And I am strongly something your listeners can do is contact the governor of the state of Louisiana and tell him to veto the heck out that bill, because if my bill's not successful and that bill stands, it will be impossible to do this going forward. It will be completely impossible because the level hide the data while saying there's no data. Okay, I didn't know that. That is, that makes no, that is like just sneaky. It's like such a setup. <laughs> it is, well, I mean, it is the epitome of hypocrisy and arrogance for them to rest their argument on the fact that there is no data and then on the other hand have a bill to hide the data. Who introduced that? Uh, Representative Stagney introduced that and it just passed, it literally passed the House on Thursday, uh, yesterday. My, my bill is scheduled for floor debate in the House next Friday, uh, May 11th. And so um, that's when it will go up. And hopefully, if it passes the, the House, uh, constitutional amendments don't go to the governor. They go straight to the ballot. So the hope would be that it passes the House and then it goes on the ballot for the congressional elections this fall. So you'll have maximum turnout, maximum voter participation. And uh, my hope is that based on the variety of groups that support the support the legislation that that it would be successful but the first step is just get it to people so they can vote and where can people go to find out who their legislator is um you can go to the legislative website it's uh, legis.la.gov and if you go on that on that website on the left hand corner it has a little box that says who's my legislators and you click on it you type in your address and prints out who all your legislators are House, Senate, everything. Remember, everybody who's listening, you can make an impact if you live in Louisiana or if you know anybody that lives in Louisiana. When does the legislature—so if this does not pass the House this this time, is it over? Or, like, is there another way? No. If it doesn't, if it doesn't pass the House now, we'd have to wait until next session in 2019. Well, thank you so much for uh, for, for joining us. I, I hope that this is successful, and I hope to support when it gets on the ballot, making sure that people vote for it. So keep me posted. I will. Thank you for having me today. Well, that's it. Thanks for joining Bots of the People. Make sure you tell a friend and make sure that you're back next week for another episode.